In episode 5, we talked about the chaotic aftermath of the Battle of Waterloo, in which France was beset by mob violence, sweeping purges, and foreign invasion. Today, we're going to delve a little bit deeper into that foreign invasion in a conversation with one of my principal sources, Professor Christine Haynes. In our conversation, Haynes talks about her recent book on this occupation, which chronicles both the brutal invasion of summer 1815, as well as the fascinating and more structured occupation to which parts of France were subjected for years after Waterloo. It turns out that this occupation had fascinating long-term impacts on both European politics and European culture. If you visit the siècle.com slash episode 6, that's T-H-E-S-I-E-C-L-E dot com slash episode 6, with 6 as a numeral, you can find a transcript of this interview. You can also find a link to buy Professor Haynes's book, which is also a way to support the podcast, because if you buy from the link on the website, Amazon will give me a small cut of the sale price. You can find other ways to support the podcast at thesiecla.com slash support, where you can contribute as little as a dollar a month to the show's Patreon, like recent backer Jacob Huffstadter, or purchase me books for the show from an Amazon wishlist, like listener Dave Camper. Without further ado, here's my discussion with Professor Christine Haynes. This is The Siecla. Episode 6. Our Friends, the Enemies. My guest today is Christine Haynes, Associate Professor at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and the author of Our Friends, the Enemies, The Occupation of France After Napoleon. I brought up Professor Haynes on to talk a little bit about her book and about this uh, chaotic period after Waterloo, after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, and is really going to shape a lot of the French history that's going to happen in the uh, years and decades to come. Professor Haynes, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me. Um, I'm really excited for the opportunity. Let's start out by talking about your book. Uh, how did you come to get interested in this topic of uh, the, the occupation of France after the Napoleonic Wars? Well, I'm really glad that you are doing this podcast on the 19th century, which I think is really the most interesting and, and pivotal uh, period of French history. Uh, I came to this topic um, very, through, via, through a very circuitous, um, uh, unusual way. Uh, I started off as a student of French literature as well as French history uh, in college, uh, did a junior year abroad in France, and then um, when I was considering graduate school, really wanted to uh, do a project at the intersection of those two fields. Uh, ultimately ended up in a history department for a PhD, um, working in the field called book history, uh, basically the history of printing and publishing. Uh, and I wrote a dissertation, which became my first book, on uh, the history of publishing in France during the 19th century. I was interested in the people who produced the works of people like Balzac, uh, Hugo, Flaubert, Zola, etc., um, and wrote about the um, debates that publishers uh, were involved with uh, uh, regarding things like literary property and licensing for printers. Um, so I started off in, uh, you know, kind of this cross between literary and cultural history. Uh, but while I was uh, doing the research for that book, I noticed that there were a number of foreign uh, printers and booksellers who were setting up shop in, the, uh, in Paris in the 18-teens. 
Uh, and I started to wonder about why so many uh, foreigners were coming to, uh, both in the business and, and then um, outside the business, were coming to Paris uh, during that period. And uh, the more I looked into it, the more I realized uh, that uh, it was the, the context of the, the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars and particularly the occupation of France uh, by the other powers of Europe that was the context for this infusion of outsiders into the, the publishing business in France. I, I started looking into the, the occupation, um, trying to find some histories of it, and realized that not much had really been written about it. There had been a few local studies um, including by a German historian, um, uh, one study of the British army in the occupation, but nobody had really written a comprehensive um, uh, book about why, uh, what, what the experience of occupation was like for the occupied as well as the occupiers during um, uh, what ended up being a three-year occupation of the, the country by these allied powers. Uh, and so kind of realizing that this was open territory, uh, I um, decided that, that would be my next book project. Uh, this required considerable retooling from the field of cultural history to military and diplomatic history. So I had to learn a, a whole new body of secondary literature and um, uh, delve into some new kinds of archives than I, than, that uh, then I had used before, including local archives. I'd mostly um, done most of my dissertation research in, in Paris and, and uh, French national archives and libraries. Um, but uh, ultimately, it was a really uh, fun challenge um, that I couldn't pass up. And, um, and this book is, is the result of about eight years of work following that first book project. Well, it's an excellent book. I'd uh, encourage everyone who's uh, listening to this who uh, finds this topic interesting to pick it up. Let's get started. For, for those who uh, uh, aren't as familiar with this topic as you are, which I assume is everyone, uh, just give a, a, quick, uh, a quick grounding in, in the, what, what the context is for this occupation of France. Uh, you know, people are familiar with the, uh, the revolution and then uh, Napoleon and then his downfall. Uh, so talk about uh, Bird's view of this period. You know, when we think about the Napoleonic Wars, uh, they are usually um, thought to have ended uh, first in 1814 and then again after Napoleon comes back for uh, 100 days in power again in, in early 1815. Uh, they're thought to really have definitively ended on the battlefield at Waterloo on June 18th, 1815. Uh, but in fact, uh, that battle was followed by a massive invasion of France by uh, 1.2 million soldiers uh, from uh, all across Europe. And uh, initially, um, and I can talk about, in the, about this in a little bit more detail in a minute, but initially uh, there's a military occupation of the country, um, some two-thirds of the territory by these uh, soldiers, uh, and that goes on through the summer um, during extensive, uh, very divisive negotiations between the various allied powers uh, and the French government about um, how to kind of resettle um, France and Europe um, uh, after this, um, uh, after Napoleon has come back to power and had to be defeated again. Um, you know, there had been a peace settlement um, after his first defeat in 1814, but now that had to be um, renegotiated. Uh, and uh, a lot of the Allies wanted a more punitive settlement uh, uh, to prevent, you know, another resurgence of um, bon uh, Napoleon himself or, or Bonapartism in general. 
And after um, months of negotiation between July and November of 1815, they ultimately settle on uh, what was called the Second Treaty of Paris. And one of the main uh, uh, terms of that treaty was that this time around, uh, the Allies would not immediately leave, but they would um, leave uh, an, uh, an army of occupation, what they call an occupation of guarantee uh, against revolution uh, in France, uh, for up to five years uh, until the French uh, had indemnified the Allies for the cost of remobilizing uh, against, uh, against Napoleon uh, and until the French had also rebuilt the uh, government and the military in a way that the Allies deemed stable. Um, so that was the context for this occupation. Ultimately, because the French are able to pay off um, their reparations a little bit early, uh, the occupation ends up lasting three years instead of five. Um, but throughout that period, uh, an occupying army of 150,000 soldiers from most of the powers of Europe uh, is stationed uh, in um, around 18 uh, garrison communities um, along the northeastern frontier of France. All right, let's, let's focus in on that earlier period, that uh, the initial occupation when 1.2 million soldiers from all around Europe were swarming over most of France. Uh, what was that like? Uh, I mean, you know, France had about 30 million people at that time. Uh, so, you know, uh, an extra 1.2 million is a lot of people. Uh, what was what was the experience of that occupation like? Even more than the very brief occupation that had happened after Napoleon's defeat in 1814, this military occupation in the summer and fall of 1815 uh, is uh, uh, chaotic, extensive, like I said, it covered two-thirds uh, of the territory of France, uh, and often quite brutal. Uh, within two weeks of Waterloo, uh, the British and Prussian armies arrive in Paris, uh, and uh, by mid-July, late July, um, there are some 200,000 soldiers um, uh, stationed, encamped I mean, in, uh, in barracks, um, sometimes in tents on the Champs-Élysées and the Bois de Boulogne uh, in and around Paris, uh, chopping down trees for firewood, uh, requisitioning supplies from the Parisians. Um, uh, this was a very traumatic uh, and humiliating uh, event for people in the capital. Uh, in the book, I quote, um, an English observer of this occupation of uh, Paris, Helen Maria Williams, uh, she described the city in 1815 uh, as follows. She said, Paris itself, though spared the worst evils of war, wears still the aspect of a conquered city, uh, guarded by foreign troops at all its gates, foreign troops posted at every bridge and cannon, which seemed as if it were pointed at the Palace of the Tuileries, the Bois de Boulogne, the Hyde Park of Paris. Uh, may now be termed rather a desert than a royal domain. And she actually compares it to the wilds of America um, amidst huts framed of logs and branches, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so this was, you know, obviously a shock um, and, uh, like I said, a humiliation for Parisians. Meanwhile, two-thirds of the rest of the country, all the way to the west, um, uh, up to about the, the borders of Brittany, um, down to the Loire, um, the, the French troops were supposed to um, evacuate beyond the Loire, so all the way down to the Loire, uh, and then all through the eastern half of France, um, there were troops from, uh, like I said, most of the, the other powers of Europe, 
Um, so the rest of that those 1.2 million troops um, were throughout uh, most of the rest of the country. Uh, and as they entered um, in the weeks after Waterloo, m- many of them sort of motivated by revenge for what they had experienced at the hands of the French, especially the Prussians who had um, themselves suffered occupation by the French um, after 1806-1807, did not hesitate um, to engage in violence against uh, the local French and the communities um, uh, where they were stationed or, or, or that they marched through. Uh, they would move into communities seizing weapons, disarming the local population, plundering supplies, destroying fields, loving contributions, uh, including stores of tobacco, salt, items that were um, state monopolies, burning villages, um, raping women, intimidating local authorities. Um, so this was a very brutal uh, invasion and uh, occupation. And meanwhile, um, I think you've already talked about this with your listeners uh, in some previous episodes, but uh, this is at exactly the same moment that the white terror is raging and vengeance is being taken against uh, people who had supported Napoleon during his uh, return to power during the Hundred Days. And so it was really a quite chaotic situation throughout most of the country in the summer of 1815. Are there any data on the the, the scope of the the devastation that was happening here? Uh, How many people died during this occupation or uh, uh, how much money was seized or anything like that? It's very difficult to get uh, numbers on uh, uh, people killed, and I would say that they're killed on both sides. There are some instances, um, but very scattered and anecdotal, uh, vengeance being taken by the local French against some of these occupying troops. Uh, So I don't think we have exact numbers of uh, deaths beyond the, the white terror itself, um, and even those statistics are... Um, are uh, uh, a bit uncertain. Uh, but uh, in terms of expenses, um, again, you know, there's a big difference, I think, between um, trying to calculate what was actually taken out of hand versus what was actually um, requisitioned with receipts, uh, that, you know, the amounts of which could be calculated afterward. Um, but the, the French main French historian of this military occupation during the summer and fall of 1815 uh, has estimated uh, the total um, costs of the um, post-Waterloo invasion and occupation uh, at 500 million uh, francs, um, uh, which was, you know, a significant uh, sum uh, in this period. All right. So uh, as you mentioned, uh, while this was all going on, there was treaty negotiations being uh, going on, which eventually set up the uh, second occupation, the occupation of guarantee, the legally defined occupation, uh, which uh, spared most of the country the direct impacts. Uh, but w- talk about what uh, that second occupation was like up in the, the northern part of France. Yeah, so first I'll just say that um, the negotiations over this second settlement, which ultimately became the Second Treaty of Paris in November 1815, uh, were quite contentious. Uh, the Prussians uh, and Austrians uh, and other some other German contingents on the one hand uh, and some members of the British government uh, wanted a very punitive uh, settlement against the French uh, to really uh, punish them for uh, supporting Napoleon in his return to power. Um, others, particularly uh, Lord Castlereagh, um, the uh, British uh, foreign minister, and then also the Duke of Wellington, who was the victor over uh, Napoleon at Waterloo, uh, were, uh, took a more moderate approach. And they were supported in this by the, by the Russians. Wellington in particular uh, really insisted that a punitive settlement was just going to exacerbate political tensions within France. 
uh, and that uh, the goal of the Allies should be restoring order, restoring security, uh, and that to do that, uh, they needed to be a little bit more liberal uh, in their approach to the to the French. What he what he proposed. Um, in his effort to make the settlement more moderate uh, was this idea of the occupation of guarantee. Uh, and in this letter to Castlereagh, he really outlined um, the goals of uh, this um, uh, this temporary uh, occupation. He said that it was first to give security to the government of the king and to afford him time to form a force of his own um, to carry on his government, uh, secondly, to give the Allies some security against a second revolutionary convulsion and reaction. And third, to enable the Allies to enforce payment of those contributions which they deem it just towards their own subjects to lay on France and payment of the expenses of war. And so those were what he saw as the goals of using this tool of what he was calling occupation of guarantee. Um, he, he, he was really trying to prevent further unrest in France and contribute to the reconstruction of France and, and, and the rest of Europe. Um, so it's important to, to note that there were some differences in opinion um, between the Allies about how to handle the situation, um, but ultimately this more moderate approach of Wellington, and particularly the occupation of, of guarantee, became central to the, um, the treaty in November of, of 1815. Under the terms of this treaty, the occupation of guarantee involved 150,000 troops, uh, plus 50,000 horses. It's important not to forget the uh, horses that came with the troops um, uh, because they uh, uh, constituted a considerable burden in terms of requisitions uh, and, and just their physical pre presence in communities it could be burdensome. Uh, so 150,000 troops plus 50,000 horses stationed around 18 garrison towns along the northeastern frontier. Uh, this army would be under the um, integrated command of the Duke of Wellington. The army was divided into national zones. Uh, so there were 30,000 British troops under Wellington in and around um, the uh, town of Cambrai. 30,000 Russians under Count Mikhail Semenovich Voronsov in Maubrouge. Uh, 30,000 Prussians under Count von Zieten in Sedan. 30,000 Austrians under Baron Johann Maria Philipp von Fremont in Colmar. And then in addition to that, um, they were the Allied powers were um, very concerned to involve the minor powers of Europe in this as well as the major ones. And so there were also 10,000 Bavarian troops, 5,000 Saxons, 5,000 Hanoverians, 5,000 Danes, uh, and 5,000 uh, troops from Württemberg uh, across the border uh, in the new German Confederation. Um, and they, these were sort of scattered in between. They had their own little zones and, and um, headquarters in between uh, the zones of the, the major powers. So, so you talked about the, the, br the brutality that was involved in this initial uh, uh, occupation. Uh, how did the, the treaty occupation compare in, in terms of its impact on the people who were being occupied? Uh, I should say that even during the initial military occupation, there was some attempt to regulate it. Uh, and ultimately, the the um, invading armies were uh, divided up into particular zones, uh, and there was some attempt to systematize requisitioning, for example. Um, the French government established a commission on requisitions that was supposed to negotiate with the Allied powers um, to, to try to ensure systematization and clear requisitioning processes as opposed to um, just pillaging by the troops. Uh, but that didn't work that well. Uh, a lot of the violence continued into the fall of, uh, of 1815. 
Uh, and so it was really only, you know, through this treaty of uh, November 1815 uh, and the institution of the occupation of guarantee uh, that it became more systematized. Uh, and all requisitioning was then organized by the French Ministry of War, um, and they would contract, um, you know, with their uh, uh, suppliers and then also with local communities. And uh, uh, they, they, they managed this process of supplying the, um, the occupying troops. Uh, and those troops were supported at the expense of the French um, to the tune of 50 million francs per year um, to pay and equip the troops, uh, and another 100 million francs uh, per year uh, to supply their rations. So there was a very systematized rationing process. Now, that did not mean that there wasn't violence. Um, so in the book, I really um, try to examine the spectrum of relations between occupier and occupied, and they did vary widely depending on the nationality of the occupier, um, uh, varying with class, um, particular communities uh, seem to get along better with the um, the occupiers than others. Uh, depended somewhat on the commander of the occupying forces. So there's a lot of variety, um, but ultimately I think um, uh, the 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 spectrum falls somewhere in between um, what I call on the one hand enemies and on the other friends and friends with a question mark because I think friends is a bit of a strong term to. Uh, characterize even the most positive relations between occupier and occupied. Um, but I take the the title of the book comes from a song that was popular at the time um, by uh, a songwriter named Pierre Jean de Beranger, uh, who, uh, as uh, the Allies were getting ready to invade again um, during Napoleon's Hundred Days, uh, wrote a song about the uh, demoiselles or prostitutes of the Palais Royal in Paris, who he said um, would profit from uh, increased business again, just as they had in 1814 from the Allies coming back into France. Uh, and the refrain of this song is, long live our friends, our friends the enemies, uh, playing on this um, ambivalence, you know, contradiction uh, in feelings uh, on the part of the French and, and their attitude uh, toward the Allies. Uh, and so in the book, I have the first part, which is really about how the, the French and the Allies, the Allied occupiers, um, really remained enemies throughout this peacekeeping mission, the, the full three years that it lasted between 1815 and 18. 18. Uh, and I talk a lot about the um, heavy burden represented by uh, lodging and supplying the troops. Um, they had to house these troops, um, often in very small communities, uh, in barracks, and when those weren't available in private houses, um, living um, cheek by jowl with the, the local French. And then they had to supply them not just with food, forage, um, like I said, the horses represented a significant burden, furnishings of various kinds, practice fields, churches, kitchens, lighting, heating, um, so all kinds of supplies that they had to, to um, provide to the occupiers. And this was during a period in which the French were recovering from war. And then in 1816, there was the so-called year without a summer, um, in which there was um, this uh, very, very uh, wet and cold summer as a result of a volcanic eruption in uh, Indonesia. Uh, and uh, so grain uh, was very scarce, and the French themselves were starving, and so this, this burden of having to house and feed the occupiers, I think, was all the more acutely felt because of that. 
And then, like I said, violence really continued, at least sporadically, throughout the three years of occupation. Um, there continued to be verbal as well as physical um, violence, including assaults, brawls, murders, uh, and, and rapes, and then also um, attacks on cultural property. The um, Louvre Museum, for example, had much of its um, artwork, a lot of which had been taken by Napoleonic armies from other European um, powers uh, and brought to, to Paris. A lot of it was taken back during the military occupation and then continuing into the, the occupation of guarantee. So there was definitely a lot of violence. On the other hand, in the second part of the book, I talk about the more positive relations that sometimes develop between occupier and occupied. Um, this was partly due to um, concerted cooperation between allied uh, occupying uh, officers and local French authorities uh, on things like discipline, policing, justice. Um, when offenses occurred, they were often brought to trial by the French justice system and allied courts martial. And then uh, there was significant accommodation uh, between, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it tw uh, collaboration. Um, that, uh, you know, I think that's an anachronistic 20th century term. But uh, there was uh, a lot of cooperation and accommodation between uh, allied forces and uh, local French people, especially among elites. Um, the Russian officers, for example, tended to speak French and often got along very well with local authorities, joined them in balls, at the theater, for dinners, um, hunting. Um, so there was a lot of socialization, especially in the on the elite levels. Uh, but even among the lower classes, uh, there was considerable fraternization, sometimes resulting in uh, romance, illegitimate children, whose numbers went up during this period, sometimes even marriage. In the book, I've really tried to uh, convey the, the, the broad range of um, experiences um, of both the occupied and occupied during the, uh, these three years. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. What was the experience for the occupiers during this time of these the soldiers who were uh, uprooted and posted in another country for uh, several years with a perhaps sullen at best population? It also ranged widely. It's interesting, again, at all social levels, there was some, uh, you know, hostility, reluctance to engage with the local population, I would say, especially among the Prussian core, uh, but also um, to a certain extent the British. The, the British had a reputation for being somewhat standoffish uh, with the local French. 
Uh, among other contingents, I think there was a lot more exchange. Austrians, for example, in Colmar, uh, the, the commander von Fremont socialized quite a bit with the local prefect in Colmar. He would bring officers with him to mix with the local notables, uh, and they had numerous dinners and dances and and outings, um, hiking, hunting, etc., in the, the surrounding area. And in fact, um, you know, when the occupation was ending, uh, the locals bestowed a lot of um, honors and, and letters and gifts on von Fremont, and he remained in contact with a lot of the uh, local authorities uh, in that town um, for, for years afterward. Um, so there are examples like that of, of considerable, um, you know, uh, fraternization, especially among elites, but like I said, even farther down the social scale, too. And then, you know, even among soldiers, uh, some became involved with local women. Um, some actually stayed after the occupation. Um, there are uh, numerous cases of men who um, remained and married local women or tried to set up trade um, in the communities where they had been stationed, uh, later applied for naturalization uh, in France. Um, and that, I think that was especially true among the Russians, who they had lifetime military service in Russia, so they were not in any hurry to go back home uh, after the occupation. So I think for, for some of the men, at least, among these troops, France you know, represented a, uh, a more civilized, um, liberal, uh, even though the king had come back, uh, they, they, they were exposed to, to new ideas, had a, a better quality of life, perhaps, um, uh, even in these small villages during this time of dearth uh, in eastern France than uh, they might have had at home. And, um, you know, there are at least anecdotal accounts of some of them crying when they had to leave um, because they had actually been quite happy during the three years of occupation. When, remember, they, they, they'd been at war for 20 years, uh, and now at least, um, you know, there, there was no actual combat. They were um, just, um, you know, responsible for standing guard in these communities. You share a, a really fascinating uh, anecdote in your book, I believe, about uh, how even something as simple as dancing uh, could be a real flashpoint. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the, uh, that and uh, some of the other cultural uh, misunderstandings that happened when you had these people from all over Europe uh, stationed on an unwilling French population? Yes, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think dancing uh, is a good example of the both negative and positive relations during the occupation. Um, dancing could be a real flashpoint. A lot of the brawls that broke out in local communities uh, happened over dancing uh, and usually over the question of exactly which dance step was going to be um, per, uh, performed um, in a cabaret or, or at a, usually not at an elite ball, but um, in a tavern or cabaret, there would be conflict over um, what kind of dancing was going to happen because the uh, French uh, usually dance the contradance and uh, German soldiers in particular, but um, other allies had begun to adopt um, the uh, waltz. Uh, and then the Russians had dances like the Polonaise or the, the Mazurka. And so there would be conflict over whose dances were going to dominate in a given evening. To the point that uh, eventually some of the Allied authorities began to pass regulations um, that said that these dance steps had to be alternated uh, if, if uh, you know, an evening of dancing was going to be organized. Um, so it could be a point of uh, contention, but it was also a point of socialization and fraternization between the occupiers and the occupied. Uh, and there are numerous accounts of French uh, bourgeois and allied officers organizing dances to which they would invite Russian troops who were known to be good dancers. 
um, to, you know, uh, to, to socialize together. And then uh, after the occupation was over, as a result of the occupation, uh, I think the spread of many of these dance steps across Europe and the mixing of them in social settings, you know, not just in France, but elsewhere, really spread. So this is an example of kind of the, um, one of the main things that I try to emphasize in the book, which is the cross-cultural exchange that happened as a, as a um, result of the occupation. Speaking of cross-cultural exchange, I, I, I believe this is from a different book and not from yours, but one of my favorite anecdotes of this period uh, talked about all the uh, wine that the French officers would seize, uh, the foreign officers rather, would seize uh, from the French and drink uh, often without paying, especially in the earlier days. Uh, but uh, the observation from uh, one uh, uh, woman from uh, Champagne who noted, uh, quote, they are drinking, they will pay. Uh, and that, in fact, in the years after this, uh, uh, once they could no longer seize Champagne, uh, the uh, uh, rich of Europe started buying it in vast numbers. And that, that the sort of this occupation helped kick off this massive change in tastes due to exposure to French wine. Uh, so I wanted to use that sort of to kick off what you were talking about brief discussion of sort of the long-term impact and the cultural impact of this uh, cross-pollination of uh, cultures of, of Europe coming to France and uh, the impact that that had. Yeah, I think uh, it has really been underestimated, and I love that anecdote. Um, I was never really able to establish the the, tr- the truth of it. You know, I think that that was one of the things that most fascinated me about this project was the intense cross-cultural exchange that was happening and, and the repercussions that that had across Europe uh, through the 19th century. There were definitely, the, the, the occupiers when they left exported um, not just wine, uh, uh, but various eating habits, um, the restaurant, right, which was a, a new phenomenon. Rebecca Spang has written about this uh, in Paris beginning in the, the Revolutionary Napoleonic period. Foreign officers, but even some troops, because they were relatively inexpensive um, for British troops, for example, in Paris, um, experienced the restaurant uh, and took some of these new dining habits back with them. Uh, when they left fashions, there were reports of the wives of British officers loading up on dresses to take back with them uh, when they left. Um, the Prussian king apparently came to the um, boutiques uh, in Paris to buy dresses and such for, for the members of his family. Um, so uh, there's a, a lot of um, that sort of exchange happening, and I haven't really um, traced it in detail uh, in the years after this, but I think certainly um, it shaped... Um, uh, European culture and and really Frenchified it um, over the succeeding decades. I think this is true for literature too. We've underestimated the extent to which um, Romanticism uh, as an international movement uh, is facilitated by uh, the um, occupation and just more broadly the reopening of the of France. Uh, and the continent um, to the British in particular uh, after the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, there was just um, intense, intense uh, exchange going on uh, in this period in, in a way that hadn't been possible except among emigre communities or among, um, you know, members of the military who were traveling around in the two decades before this. Uh, and so I think that's very important. One of the other things you talk about in your book is uh, the impact of this occupation of guarantee as sort of a legal diplomatic precedent uh, and sort of a step toward the development of a, a new way that nations and nations at war interacted. Uh, could you sort of talk briefly about that? 
Yes, I think uh, that's one of the um, most important conclusions of the book or most important findings of the book uh, is that uh, not just the problems, but the solutions to the process of exiting for more um, that have been explored um, more for 20th century wars, right? Um, the, the kinds of peace settlements and, and especially use of occupation for peacekeeping purposes um, that we associate, uh, th that have been dated really to the late 19th century at the earliest and associated mostly with the, the, the two world wars, um, that those uh, were already present and really originated in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. I think I think 20th century uh, history fans might find the, the idea of like dividing an occupied country into zones that assigned to different countries, things like that might sound very familiar. Exactly. Um, it, it, it's very striking, really, how much this occupation was foreshadowing a lot of what would happen, not so much after World War One, because I think that's a very different uh, kind of peace settlement. And, um, you know, the consequences of that play, the negative consequences of that played out in the interwar period. But it, it's very similar to the um, approaches of the Allies after World War Two. this idea that um, you need to have a settlement and you need to use occupation uh, for peacekeeping, not just peacekeeping, but rebuilding, reconstructing the country. Um, that was very much the idea of the, the Allies in 1815. And this was really a new approach um, to military occupation, using it not, for con not so much for conquest, um, which it had been used uh, for, you know, up to this time, including during the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars themselves, um, but for reconstruction, uh, and not just of the state, but of the entire people. Um, uh, this was really an effort to, um, uh, you know, restabilize France politically and uh, reconcile the French people with uh, the, the community of nations. And I think that was a very novel and uh, important development um, in international diplomacy, international law. To stop, are there any... Any stories or anecdotes? Yeah, when we were talking about cross-cultural exchange, I should have said, or cosmopolitanism, I should have said that uh, one thing that's really interesting about this period, and this goes back to how I got interested in the topic in the first place, is uh, during the, the late 18-teens, uh, France was inundated not just with all of these Allied uh, troops, uh, but also with civilians from other parts of Europe, and particularly from Great Britain. Some fifteen to 20,000 Brits uh, were visiting France, and especially Paris, um, throughout the, the late 18-teens. And uh, they, they were you know, part of this importing and exporting of idioms, food, fashions, dance steps, etc., that we've talked about. Um, but I forgot to mention that one of my favorite examples of the cross-cultural exchange and, and what I've called cosmopolitanism happening in this period uh, is what were called the Montagne Russe, uh, which literally means Russian mountains, and that's still the word that the French used uh, to uh, describe roller coasters. And so these were early versions of roller coasters modeled after uh, hills of ice that uh, Russians would sled down during Carnival in Russia. And it's a little unclear exactly how they came to France uh, in 1816, um, but I think it, it's um, certain that French troops saw them when they invaded Russia. Russia in 1812, uh, and then, um, you know, it, it exemplifies the Russian influence uh, on French culture that was happening uh, when Russians invaded in 1814 and again 1815 to 1818. And uh, these roller coasters became all the rage in Paris, uh, and uh, there were, you know, probably close to a dozen of them set up in parks um, uh, around the outskirts of the city. 
frequented by um, uh, Parisians, uh, especially the upper and middle classes, um, but also all of the foreign visitors to Paris uh, in this period. We have lots of accounts um, in travelogues and guidebooks uh, of these Russian mountains. And then um, there were they, they, they were such a cultural phenomenon that uh, there are now two boxes of prints of them, images of them uh, in the National Library in Paris. Uh, numerous plays were written about them. Um, they really came, became sort of a, cult, uh, a character in pop culture themselves. They, they didn't last long in Paris at this time. There were some safety concerns. A couple of people died in accidents on them. Uh, but uh, I think um, this is you know, one of the more fun examples of this, um, the, the way in which the occupation and the resurgence of cosmopolitanism in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars you know, really impacted uh, French and, and European culture in this period. So I just wanted to mention that example. I'm so glad you did. I uh, thought about a way to try to work that in myself, but I'm glad you brought that up. That wraps up my discussion with Professor Christine Haynes, author of the new book, Our Friends the Enemies, The Occupation of France After Napoleon. I highly recommend it, and would encourage you to pick up a copy as well. You can find a link to do so at thesiecla.com slash episode 6, with 6 as a numeral. My thanks to Professor Haynes for coming on the show, as well as for her help in personal correspondence as I've researched this period for the podcast. Be sure to check back in two weeks, for a discussion of the strange parliamentary monarchy set up by the Bourbon Restoration, which combines some surprising liberalism with extremely limited voting rights. Much more on that in Episode 7, The Charter. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.